So we have literally all of humanity's knowledge at our fingertips, thanks to the internet. Most fingertips, of course, these days, however, are occupied instead with fidget spinners, but millions of those that aren't have used them to take college courses online thanks to a phenomenon called Massive Open Online Courses, or MOOCs. What are these and where do they come from? Will they replace college as a destination? Are they making the world smarter and knocking down socioeconomic boundaries to accessing education? Let's learn more from my guest today, Harvard Graduate School of Education professor, Dr. Andrew Ho. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome back, folks. I'm Davin Sweeney, a college admissions counselor at the University of Rochester, who talks to people about some of the un- or underexplored parts of the college and higher ed landscape. And today I'm going to be talking with somebody about the digital higher ed landscape. But before I get into it, a quick reminder to rate this show on iTunes, please, means a lot. Uh, you can contact me at crushpod at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at crushpod. I got a handful more interviews uh, in line for imminent release as well, uh, just as soon as I can imminently find some imminent time to do them. Um, somebody asked me the other day how my summer was going, and all I could say was, well, it's, it's the same as the other seasons. It's just hotter. It ain't what it used to be. So I'm busy. I'm doing stuff. That's what that means. Uh, I went on some vacation, though, recently. It was nice. Not long enough. Anyways, Dr. Andrew Ho has done a ton of research on MOOCs, and after our conversation, I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, I'd read a, a URL out here, but if you just Google his name, you'll find it. He also gets to call himself a psychometrician, which is just a cool-sounding thing to be, I think. Uh, but it means he's done a lot of work on tests and testing and assessment, and it matters here in relation to MOOCs because there are a lot of sticky parts to administering these and really knowing about them at all, from measuring their effectiveness to coming up with a way to make sure people aren't cheating when there's nobody watching them take the tests associated with the courses, and how to give people a credential after having taken the course that actually matters out there in the marketplace. Um, Harvard, MIT, Berkeley, and others were early providers in this field. And since then, for-profit models like Coursera have opened up shop. So it's a big deal, but just how big? So tons more here with Dr. Andrew Ho. So let's dive in. I spoke to him over the phone from his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm interested in talking to you specifically as a result of um, a presentation of yours that I saw um, back in November. It was sort of a, uh, a fateful couple of days because it had just been, we had just, uh, we had just elected a crazy person um, <laughs> to the presidency of the United States. And I think there was a little bit of a pall over the crowd that day. Uh, and so you soldiered forth though, no matter what. And it was, I, I was really, really intrigued by your work, your, uh, your research on um, massive online open courses or MOOCs. So tell me a little bit about how you got into this and how it relates to the rest of your research. So I'm a professor and our, our jobs are uh, teaching research and service. Um, and you would think this would have come out of my uh, research uh, interest, but actually it started as service. I um, was appointed to chair the Harvard X Research Committee uh, by my provost, um, Alan Garber. And uh, he said, we are, and this is like in the early days of, of edX, which launched in 2012 in the early days of MOOCs. He said, Harvard and MIT are getting together and launching this open online course platform. And we want to make sure that research is a key component of it. One of the promises of online learning is that we might be able to understand um, more deeply what, um, how people learn uh, online uh, and how people learn in general. And um, I, my research is in assessment and usually conventional assessment in the sense of, of you know, annual tests um, that are administered by states and the federal government. And uh, this was a little bit of a stretch, but he knew um, that one of the core sort of value propositions of MOOCs was certification, and certification requires, uh, presumably, uh, good assessment. <laughs> and he knew that I'd done a lot of work with big data sets, and um, so he appointed me as chair of the committee, and our charge was to 
um, not just do research, but enable research um, on learning in massive open online courses. And so when we launched in 2012, um, our, our, our three contributions were, um, were reach, research, and recirculation. And, uh, and so reach is the sense of, of scope. Um, we wanted to, to reach students across the world. Um, we also wanted to conduct research on how people learn and learn best online, and then recirculate some of these findings so that we could improve teaching on campus. Um, but this was very much a, a service commitment, um, but it became um, a, a deep research commitment as well as I and my colleagues um, at MIT formed a big research team and got together to, to think about not just how to do good research online, but enable others to do the same. And so um, we have uh, a uh, one of the, still one of the only student level publicly available MOOC data sets, uh, massive open online course data sets um, that's, that you could go to now. You could just Google it, HarvardX, MITx data set. Um, and we also have all of our course level statistics. So if you want to see um, you know, gender distributions and completion rates and bachelor's degree and, and international composition of, of all of our 290 courses, um, you can uh, download that too and under year four, year four report appendices, uh, which we just released. Um, uh, in December, shortly after I saw you at that presentation. So we're committed to transparency. We're, transparency. We're committed to research, um, and uh, but it started um, as as a committee assignment. So what are we talking about when we talk about MOOCs? What makes a MOOC a MOOC? Who invented that? name because we're going to have to say it a lot now that actually um you know uh yes. we, we know what it stands for at this point but i mean hey it's a mooc uh so yeah what you know where where do these where do these things come from and what makes them what they are that's a, that's a great question. So like many a buzz term, it, it achieves its power in part from uh, shared misunderstanding. <laughs> like every, everyone thinks that what they're doing is a MOOC and, uh, and that creates a big tent under which people can, uh, can um, debate what, what, whether, whether what they have is right. a MOOC. Right. And is but, there, you know, um, and I guess to, to sort of add to that, is there, is there some sort of, you know, regulatory you know, body around these? No, so um, so the the term um, originated in the late aughts um, by people who were interested in building communities online, and then became learning communities online. And those courses were less about certification and more about community um, and connection among students. Um, and the term then um, became applied to uh, more formal uh, courses that that. Um, that included certification, and this was around like the 2010-11-12 era when all of these um, uh, uh, um, primarily engineering and data science-oriented classes were were launching on the West Coast, and we launched ours in 2012. So again, the the acronym is Massive Open Online Course, um, and you might remember um, well um, the, the very first slide, my title slide um, uh, for my presentation on November 10th. And you're right, that really was uh, yeah, man. It feels like it feels like a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> We're all still here, though, somehow. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, but even, I think it still exists up on the Wikipedia page, but this guy named Matthew Plord um, uh, has this great um, uh, little little diagram where, you know, under massive, there's a question, what is massive? A hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand? What is open? Uh, is, does it mean paid or complete, have to be completely free? Or um, And what does online mean? Um, can you have, like, people meet up in cohorts, or does, does it all have to be online? And, and then what is a course can it be synchronous or asynchronous um, does it count for college credit is it just a badge or is it um, so he, he has a good he does a good job of breaking down just how big the tent can be um, but but you asked if there was a regulatory body and and it turns uh, the, the the sort of de facto regulatory bodies are these um, these providers um, Coursera for example edX um, Udacity um, where Harvard and MIT's platform that we have published about um, is edX and and what they count as a course is what becomes what becomes a, a MOOC, um, but of course, as you um, as you might remember from the presentation, the, how massive it is is changing. How open it is is changing. Um, in particular, courses are becoming smaller. Um, they're becoming less open in the sense that they're that they require money or registration um, uh, and sometimes applications. Um, and so they are becoming a little bit more like conventional online courses. And um, so so it's hard to say right. <laughs> what, what a MOOC is. You right. 
his lawyers do just sort of a term to, to capture people's attention. Well, and, <laughs> and you know, apropos of the theme that we've that we've addressed a couple of times here, you know, we there's uh, there's a, a, a massive degree of interest in the the concept of of what you're getting online being being real or not, you know, and, and, and so how, how do, how do we know, or do we know, we, we basically have to just sort of trust the entities that are putting these together that, you know, that what you're getting is actually valuable and, 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 and what is being presented. Yes. Um, so I, I think that do the notion of value, of course, is obviously really, really, uh, flimsy and flexible too. That's right. Um, so there's a couple, a couple, a couple, <laughs> you tug at any one of these threads, right? And right. you go, that's right. Um, so, you know, so the um, edX, um, in contrast to Coursera, Coursera has taken a sort of course by course approach, and edX has taken an institution by institution approach. So, so is Coursera a, 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 a private sort of firm? Are they affiliated with any other you know educational institution? Yeah, so you know, edX they, obviously they you are a for profit MIT and a Harvard project. Right, so. that's right, that's right. Yeah. Um, so Coursera is for profit. edX is not for profit. That was one of the um, original motivations around creating edX is we wanted to be very research driven and not for profit. Um, Coursera um, uh, was launched by folks affiliated with Stanford, um, and uh, but it, but it became its own entity. I'm not, I'm not sure to the extent to which Stanford was original investor, but I seem to recall that that's the case. Um, yeah. edX um, uh, is is owned by Harvard and MIT. And a lot of other institutions have signed on, including those that uh, work that have Coursera courses. So um, it's not uh, it's not an either or um, as far as institutions go. But but there is a Harvard X and there is an MIT X uh, and there is a Berkeley X and there is a UT Austin X. And so um, there is um, sort of institutional identity around open online offerings through edX, which I think has been nice in the sense that um, it's it's as opposed to instructor by instructor, professor by professor. Um, there's sort of an institutional um, uh, accountability um, is one way to think about it that as you said you know anyone could release a course and that's not quite true um, in in the sense that um, uh, we have a vetting process here at Harvard and also at MIT about who gets to put on a MOOC and there are some there are some you know, sort of quality controls um, and these are also almost always you know university courses um, that already would, one would presume uh, would be high quality and uh, and so that there, um, there are some checks uh, when it comes, and and mm -hmm. not just a course and professor level accountability, but also institutional accountability when it comes to edX. You know, it's a question that I have is, uh, given the the age of the internet, which in the grand scheme of things is you know a blip on the screen, but still it's been around a, a very long time. That I'm actually frankly surprised that you know it didn't that these things didn't show up sooner. Yes, and they have their um, their roots in uh, not just um, correspondence courses, which goes, goes back decades and decades, um, but uh, but also MIT's OpenCourseWare, which is 15 years old now. And so I think one of the one of the useful questions to ask is what is different about MOOCs compared to their predecessors? And I think um, it was this sort of convergence of um, elite, quote, elite universities, um, plus um, not just courseware in the sense of videos and uh, and syllabi and texts, uh, but assessments and certification. Um, and so if you add like that, that sense that we really are opening up our doors to the world, right? And these elite universities are now, uh, you can access what a student here at Harvard can access. That would, that really galvanized um, uh, people's, people's uh, in, in, attention. And it also um, raised questions about, hey, wait a second, um, if anyone can get uh, a Harvard degree, then what is a Harvard degree? And why don't we increase college access and attainment for students uh, around the world? And so that that, that created a, um, a, a, an important conversation, I think, about um, how stingy we are and selective we are about about educational opportunity and access. And, and so one of the motivations around this is like, you know, we who teach at Harvard, we, we want to make a difference in the world. And um, if, if we can do that, the click of a button, um, then then great, let's do it. And uh, and um, and so that 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 was part of what what motivated it. So I, I think if you and it, and it wasn't just again access. It was like it was like professors saying, you know, I want to invest my time in hundreds to thousands of students around the world, and and then give them something at the end that might have value, right? That might signal that they know something, and uh, and that's that's the difference between MOOCs and, and OpenCourseWare. And so, what have you been able to learn so far about the effectiveness of that goal? 
So the effectiveness is um, is a good question, uh, and it's 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 a it's a question of like compared to what and for right. what purpose, right? <laughs> so so have we increased access? Yes, we have increased access, right? There are hundreds and thousands, um, you know. So in our year four report, um, you can you can Google bit you can Google like Harvard year four report, and our Harvard MIT report will come up. There are 4.5 million registrations, right? So um, and about 250,000 certifications, right? So um, we've reached a lot of people around the world uh, and certified them um, as as um, being uh, proficient in whatever the respective courses, all of these 290 courses um, that we've analyzed so far across Harvard and MIT. Um, so we, we have we have made we have made a difference. Um, now, then, a fair question is: of all the people who sign up, um, for how, how how many of how many of those have you made a difference? <laughs> right? mm-hmm. And and that's the sort of certification rate critique that has come up about MOOCs is that we only certify like five to 9% uh, of people who initially sign up. And they um, uh, that has been framed by the media as as sort of like a, a weakness, right? In the sense that um, you don't have a lot of people completing, so that must um, be related to the quality of the course. Um, and as you remember in my presentation, I pushed back against that uh, somewhat because um, unlike uh, our typical class where you invest a lot of money and time into thinking about what you want um, and then have to pick yourself up physically and and get there and invest your your time uh, in in that course um, that these are open open sign up courses you can click right now uh, as a casual um, observer and um, and you're going to be a student and that would count uh, as a dropout if you didn't finish but we would consider that to be a win because uh, you got to be exposed to um, to you know the history of, of, of China you got to be exposed to computer science you got to be exposed to philosophy mm-hmm. um, so how you measure reach and impact I think um, it's possible to say at the same time we um, uh, we had 4.5 million people uh, to click into our course and browse, uh, and we also had 250,000 certificates um, that that people earned, and those are both um, useful, right? I mean, that both that people browsed and people that people completed are both useful. Um, so then the question becomes, how do we evaluate whether or not uh, a MOOC is good? Um, and that is a difficult question because then you need a counterfactual. You need to say, compared to what? Mm-hmm. Compared to a residential course? Um, compared to not doing anything at all? I mean, and so compared to not doing anything at all, we're, we're, we're making a big difference. But compared Compared to um, something else that someone might do, that's the counterfactual question that I think is more important. And unfortunately, we don't have much data on that because it's not like we're randomly assigning people to MOOCs versus a, a residential program. Right. Um, you are seeing some better studies coming out now that are um, more about like online degree programs versus residential degree programs, but those aren't MOOCs, right? Those are um, those are online um, uh, degree programs. Um, so we're learning a lot about how people consume um, uh, online uh, learning, uh, I mean, online learning opportunities, um, but we can't directly answer the question, is that better than like a residential um, a residential course? Yeah, and so I just want to help continue to kind of differentiate a little bit here, be, you know, the questions come up again and again compared to what, you know, and so you, you just mentioned online degree programs, you know, so how do you, what are the, what are the differentiators between a MOOC and, a, and an online degree program? Right. So, so generally, it's um, it's it has to do with selection, and then it has to do with the rigor of the ultimate assessments. Um, so, um, one of the key ways that we, uh, as higher education institutions, sort of con- control the quality of our programs is by selecting the students who, um, and like knowing who they are, right, um, uh, who are best prepared to uh, to um, to complete the, the the content. And that's not what we do in MOOCs, where you know a five-year-old could could drop on in, and a 65-year-old could drop on in, and you could have a PhD in the topic and drop on in, uh, or you might you know just be clicking around and and uh, not have any of the prerequisites and you could still drop on in and what we do um, in higher education institutions obviously is, is control that very very tightly at the at the front end mm-hmm. and figure out who is qualified to come on in um, and then on the back end we say um, okay you're, you're taking this assessment and you know we're gonna proctor it or we're gonna make sure it's you <laughs> and uh, we're gonna make sure that it's your learning and not someone else's learning we're gonna make sure that you're not just cribbing from a whole bunch of sources uh, and MOOCs have very few of those um, controls Roles, although um, 
the that sometimes when you pay for these quote verified certificates, there are these um, external um, account these external checks on, that you are who you are right. and that you're you're being proctored. Um, but for the most part, the the free MOOCs the cert, the, for for free certification don't have that check. Um, and so actually, we one of my papers that came out of this was about a a, a low incidence but interesting like form of cheating online where you create multiple accounts and serve, have one account serve the answers to the other. <laughs> and so it's like you've created two identities, right? right? And so, so in, in residential settings, we typically have much more um, uh, check, have many more checks uh, that you are who you are and uh, that you're learning what you, uh, what we certify that you're learning. What do we know about the people who are taking these courses? You mentioned the uh, the, the savant five year old who can access them somehow, uh, and then the you know the old person and everybody in between. I mean, what do you know about the about the kinds of people that are accessing these courses, and uh, and are they are they doing it sort of equally across disciplines, or are there are there areas of thinking and learning that are much more popular than others these days? Right. So that's a, that's a great question. Um, what, one of the slides that I like to show is that if is like if the MOOC um, classroom had a hundred people, who would they be? Right. And you'd see that 33 of them would be female, and the rest would be male. You'd see that most of them would already have bachelor's degrees. Only 27 or so would have uh, would not have bachelor's degrees um, out of the hundred. Um, you'd, you'd find three 60 year olds uh, in in your audience, and you'd find seven people who are uh, who are in in their teens and and less than teens, um, and only 29 of the people in in this 100-person classroom would be from the United States, and the rest would be international. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd also have these interesting features, like six of the people sitting in that 100-person class will be teachers of that topic. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it's like it's, it's, you'd, you'd think that they'd all be students, but we actually have a surprising number of teachers, um, and also teachers of that topic who are dropping in the MOOCs just to presumably see um, how it's being taught. And uh, and take it back to their own classrooms, or or improve their own understanding of the of the courses that they're teaching. So, um, as I described it um, in the presentation, there is no classroom like this on Earth, right? There's no physical classroom like this on Earth that has this much heterogeneity. Um, there's just this much this broad of an age distribution. This um, highly educated, frankly, but also with very little formal education. Um, and uh, there's there are a few classrooms that are so international, and not just non-U.S. but so diverse across. Um, the world. We have this map that shows just how many countries they come from, and the answer is like all of them. <laughs> they come from all the countries, and uh, and also you know with with such a range of you know novice to expert, right? You get in a, in a typical class, you don't get people who are experts in the topic because they'd rather spend their time you know getting certified in what they haven't learned yet. Um, in the case of MOOCs, you get people who are very casually dropping in to say, okay, I want to see how you're teaching what I already know. Um, so. Is remarkable heterogeneity in MOOCs, um, and it's 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 been neat to break down our assumptions of uh, of what it means to be a quote student, um, and and see just how diverse um, uh, the 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 um, the population can be when you open it up uh, wide and free. Mm-hmm. And what about the kinds of things that people are studying? Yeah, so we have um, we also have this like course network diagram um, that we like to to show um, uh, the hubs of MOOC um, sort of curricular networks. If you can imagine this network diagram where right. everyone's like connected, right? The hubs of those networks um, continue to be computer science and computer science related classes. That was how the first um, gigantic MOOC started in 2011 and 2012 um, related to computer science, um, and they continue to be again the hubs of of these networks that send um, their students to uh, other other courses, including humanities courses and education courses and STEM courses. Um, so if you, if you think of the network, um, uh, the, um, the, the CS courses are sort of right in, in the middle of it. Um, but we um, have quite a, a diversity of classes when it comes to topic areas too. Our, our alliance with MIT um, means that they have disproportionately um, large numbers of CS and engineering classes, and we um, have disproportionately large numbers of um, humanities courses, uh, but we all have some of both. Um, and uh, we also have a lot of graduate offerings. So you, you'd think that this would, ju- this would just be sort of Khan Academy style, like, um, like elementary, secondary education level um, topics. Um, and maybe, you know, but, but a lot of our topics are very specialized and advanced. And that's why you get so many people with, um, with advanced degrees who are older, um, because this is sort of graduate level work, less college substitute and more graduate 
graduate level substitution. Um, we didn't want to replace our introductory level classes. We wanted to show just how specialized you could be um, in the MOOC in the MOOC context. Um, so yeah, we, you know, 290 classes and multiple versions of the same classes. Um, uh, entrepreneurship, and, you know, the American Dream, um, the book with poetry. Um, uh, health statistics, um, uh, poverty, and, and circuitry, and so we, it's it's quite the range of uh, of of, of it, it's reflective um, uh, of of the range of the curriculum that we have at our universities. So it's interesting. You know, I'm reminded of of the uh, you know since we're we're talking about Harvard, I'm reminded of the uh, you know the, the the Goodwill Hunting quote where you know he's I think I don't know. He's talking to maybe it's Mini Driver or something, and he, he says that he's got uh, you know uh, why would you pay for a fancy education when I get the same one with a, you know the cost of a library card? You know, <laughs> you dropped 150 grand on a fucking education you could have got for a dollar fifty in late charges at the public library. <laughs> I mean, is it, is is that what we're potentially talking about? Could, could somebody mimic you know having a receiving a a a you know at least academically you know a harvard undergraduate experience exclusively through navigating the uh, uh the mooc landscape this is this is exactly the provocative question that i'm glad that moocs ask and what i think it forces us to do in higher education institutions uh is answer the question of what exactly our added value is over and above um, the, uh, the the library card, or in the case of open courseware, um, w- over and above I- internet access to all that that's currently available. Um, and what MOOCs did was was inch us closer to what Harvard and MIT really do offer, which again is certification um, that you have learned um, our you know our level of of um, of um, uh, of, you know, of of rigorous content. Um, so, so then it then it forces us even more sharply to to say. Um, again, what what is it that we offer? And I think that it's uh, a lot about um, what goes on in the you know fifty to seventy percent of time that you're not sitting in class. <laughs> that's that's uh, that, that's all the learning that you're doing with each other, with this amazing group of of uh, fellow freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors, and graduate students. Um, that uh, that that yeah, and that just in the same way that in our K twelve education, we're increasingly appreciating um, just. How how um, diverse the effects are of education, not just on academic learning, uh, but on social, emotional skills uh, and um, and uh, these, quote, non-cognitive um, out- outcomes. And so I think that colleges are increasingly interested now in, in, um, in measuring that, uh, but also um, advertising that that's part of what you get at a residential institution um, is, is, the, is the learning that comes with interacting with these kinds of peers um, in the this, um, in this setting, all, all grounded firmly in um, in academic uh, learning, but also um, the, the the impacts are are far broader than that. Right. I mean, this is this is why probably people are not terribly concerned about uh, the internet replacing the the quad. Uh, That's right. <laughs> you know that that there's still value in 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 being in a group and talking about this stuff and, and, and all of, you know, being just sort of being, being grouped together. That's right. And, and you see that online. Um, and I think one of the critiques of the, of the, of the MOOCs as they have come to be developed is that they are not um, currently very oriented to building community, right? There is a thirst among our If anything, uh, I think right now we see the the exact opposite when it comes to what online social networks can do. You know, right. I mean, this was an article that I read recently, and I've been, you know, very interested in this topic since. To continue the theme, Andrew, after the election, I quit Facebook <laughs> because it was just the world's most high-tech, you know, trigger for me. Yeah. And yeah. I think a lot of people did the same thing. And what we've come to learn is, you know, that... Uh, AI uh, has basically given, uh, you know, online communities, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of weaponized information so that you're going to engage in it, not because it's interesting to you, but because it is infuriating to you as right. well, right? Yeah, I think I think it, it, it's, um, it, it reveals the importance of 
moderation and uh, not you know, moderation in the sense of moderating a forum, right? Control of uh, and attention to how information is curated, right? Um, uh, and you know the critique against fa- uh, Facebook and Twitter, right? Is that you know how, how, did they didn't did they not do enough, right? To um, effectively edit, right? As an editor would, um, what what the content is that people are seeing, or are they just maximizing um, uh, engagement as measured narrowly by how much you click when you're are enraged. Yes, exactly. And so the, there is certainly a way in which, um, uh, f- for MOOCs, right. Um, which is, has right. Lot, do, has do, do MOOCs feel an obligation to, to generate community? That's exactly, that's exactly the question. And I think the answer to that, um, depends um, heavily on the instructor, but the average is not so much, uh, they don't care. They're not investing that much into that aspect of the site. Um, but there is variability and some people are posting on forums frequently. Um, we actually did an experiment that, that, that tested whether or not, um, we, um, people, um, uh, 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 Tiffany Wong and Drew Lichtenstein and, and some of our co-authors, um, did a little experiment where they moderated a random half and didn't moderate another random half. In, in one case, interestingly, it made a difference. In another case, it didn't, depending on the course. Um, but uh, but the, yeah, the question is, do, does, does uh, um, this, in this case, teaching fellow moderation make a difference? And I think it'd be interesting to repeat that experiment at the level of the instructor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, because uh, my, I would hazard a guess that it would make a difference, and it certainly would make a difference in terms of, uh, I think, in terms of people's like memory of the course and feeling uh, a lot of what learning is, is what you remember from your undergraduate and graduate experiences are these sort of um, impressions of, of being with your instructor and your teaching fellows and your peers. Um, and uh, it's hard it's hard for me to see how a video um, can completely replace that what do we know about how people learn in a MOOC versus you know in a classroom or in a lecture yeah so the 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 big word for us um, that really surprised us in um, in the data um, but perhaps shouldn't have been surprising in, in retrospect is, is asynchronicity right um, uh, which is the, the just how um, different the paths were and how sporadic the paths were um, for different students across uh, across all of our MOOCs and we have some of these figures that show that you know people can come in and finish the course in like in three different sittings in three different days and other people check in week to week as if it were a regular class. Um, so on the one hand, it, it raises um, this possibility that, you know, this is like sort of personalized learning is the buzzword these days, right? Where you can go at your own pace and as fast as you want um, and uh, and just get certified and everything uh, if you have the time and then come back to it like Two weeks to three months later at your at your leisure and then just keep learning um, and so that that's really nifty uh, and then of course on the other hand um, the, the question is well what about community what about synchronizing people's experience what about people what about bringing people together and if that's the real added benefit of residential ed- education you can see how asynchronous learning might not be able to replicate that by design right you're never going to get two people in the same room at the same time um, so so the, we were able to visualize just how asynchronous this this learning is and I think sort of the grand challenge of online learning is how to keep things interactive across uh, the, the the fact of asynchronous interaction, right? So how 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 do you maintain interactivity uh, across asynchronicity, right? To use two multi-syllable words, <laughs> but but yeah, so I, I think that that's I think the 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 challenge. How do you keep how do you keep people engaged when they're coming in whenever they want um, at all different times? How do, and how do you sort of uh, allow them to how do you encourage them to be engaged um uh more than they currently are right i mean and you you talked earlier about the pretty amazing degree of diversity of the types of people that are uh that are accessing these um and obviously this is one of the central concerns for for college campuses is you know the same thing um i think maybe just for different reasons i mean the diversity around mooc sort of happened as it did it wasn't the product of any social engineering um whereas that's absolutely the point when you're somebody like me in a college admissions office you know to enroll a class that's you know kind of as different as you can get away with um and i wonder if you have any information about the degree to which MOOCs might be able to you know level the economic playing field for people who let's say don't have the money to go to college but you know have the money to pay for an internet bill 
Um, you know, what do we know about the economic effects of these, and 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 is it is it making a difference in people's lives in that way? Yeah, so um, it's a general rule. Um, my colleagues um, uh, Justin Reich and my my student John Hansen have a paper in Science about this, um, where where they remind people that the general rule of of uh, open access opportunities uh, is c- perhaps counterintuitively that that gaps will increase, not decrease. Right. So um, yes, you equalize uh, or or do a, a better job of equalizing opportunity to access these, but those with means will have disproportionate um, ability to take advantage of these open resources, right? Um, so, so even as you're equalizing access, that the, 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 the net impact of that it will be that gaps will, uh, it will increase. And so what they showed, for example, is that throughout the United States, um, the, the, the income gap between people who are using um, uh, uh, MOOCs versus... Um, ver- so the people who are using MOOCs were coming from much higher um, income areas than um, than people throughout the United States, right? Um, which is to say, people with resources were the ones who are who are accessing MOOCs, and people with, for example, college degrees were the ones who are accessing MOOCs. And so um, uh, that's not to say that the people who uh, who don't have high incomes and don't have college degrees they still have the opportunity, right? They had an opportunity now where they do not have one before, right? They did not have one before to access our courses, but the people who um, who had the you know the the means um, and the the free time and didn't have to work and and were already like prepared at a certain level to access these courses. Those were the people who already had uh, the means. Um, and so uh, and so th- it's a, it's this sort of conundrum when it comes to open access that you know, that open access will do net good for everybody, but it um, will do disproportionate good to the people who have have the uh, the access already, um, which is to say. That that if you want to actually close gaps, um, it takes a real it takes real effort, not just laissez faire, open things up. You actually have to target resources. You actually have to, um, you know, target fee waivers to those uh, who don't uh, who 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 are in low income areas or who, who have low incomes. And so it resulted in a number of proposals um, that were that edX is in various degrees of implementing um, to ensure that people who um, who don't have the financial means to get a validated certifications um, get fee waivers uh, for example so that that's that's one measure that's one way to help actively close the gap because uh, without any active um, effort the gap will increase right I mean it's, it, it, you mentioned Khan Academy earlier too which is another online learning platform and they seem to have been doing a ton of work in particular lately is in partnership with the college board to help um, yes. you know level the playing field of test prep so that you know students who uh, don't have the money to, to afford a private tutor can you know look at Khan Academy and receive more or less the same degree of instruction yes exactly um, so that's an, an interesting other sort of parallel yeah um, no just going to agree that, that that's that's, an, that's a great parallel, and uh, because Khan, Khan Academy again has done a remarkable job uh, making these uh, making resources available, but they also know that that doing that alone will not close gaps. What um, is the value of the certification that people get when they complete a MOOC? What do we know about that? Um, so what a lot of good um, uh, uses, the best uses of MOOCs right now, in my opinion, um, are those that are um, uh, on-ramp programs. Uh, so um, in general, MOOC certifications um, do not appear to um, have much currently institutionalized value in the sense that there aren't that many people saying, yes, we are going to recognize this, this, and, and this for these purposes, right? Um, but what, what um, the, the most, the most intentional, the best sort of intentional uses, I think, of MOOCs are, for example, if you look at HBX, right, Harvard Business School's um, uh, online offerings, they are all on ramps to uh, other degree programs, right? And so what they're saying is this will give you um, a pathway to uh, to business school, um, to 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 HBS and other business schools. Um, uh, MIT similarly um, it has um, these quote micromasters um, certifications, which are these sort of collections of MOOC certifications, which when bundled together will allow you to accelerate courses again in their degree programs. Um, so they're all sort of on-ramps um, to and accelerators for existing degree programs, as opposed to in and of themselves, like being degree substitutes. Again, they're all um, directed towards 
towards um, other other degrees. And I think that's that's well calculated, right? Because um, there is ultimately after you do all these MOOCs uh, a selection process, and uh, that HBS or or the MIT master's degrees would would have, um, in which your performance on a MOOC would be part of of what's evaluated, but it also your what would be evaluated were would be you know the traditional essays and and transcripts um, and and admissions test scores, um, so that there is some uh, some additional validation of your of your readiness to to to, to earn this higher higher degree um, beyond just the MOOC certifications alone, because the MOOC certifications alone, um, I, I think rightly are um, are are um, sort of incomplete. <laughs> I guess all single measures are incomplete, uh, but but they, they're sort of incomplete measures of, of your readiness to, to be like a, a student at MIT or Harvard Business School. Right. Um, you touched on it a little bit, but I wonder if you could collect your thoughts a, a little around the idea of, of, of how the mission for schools that are really committed to this, like like Harvard and MIT and Texas and a few others that you mentioned, Stanford, whatever, um, and those that are maybe trying to get into it, how the mission is sort of growing and shifting and um, and what it is that they would like to see these kinds of courses become in the future um, against maybe their their expectations for what they thought they'd be by now. Yeah. So yeah, one of my concerns about MOOCs, maybe this isn't a concern, but just, uh, as much as like a recognition of an, of the, the, an appropriate equilibrium. But but it seems to me that um, MOOCs, the MOOC movement, has sort of bifurcated um, into, on the one hand. Uh, open courseware, right? So good, good old-fashioned, 15 years old at MIT now, uh, open courseware where anyone can access um, uh, course materials, right? Uh, and uh, on on the other hand, so on the one hand, open courseware, and on the on the other hand, um, it's becoming smaller, curated online courses, right? That are that are not free, that are paid, um, that have some sort of control over the examination process. They might even have some control over the selection process, but they're not. Not massive, right? They are small online courses. Neither of these is uh, a major innovation, right? Um, we've had online courses for a long time. We've had open courseware for a long time. Um, but it seems to me that the MOOC movement has uh, has sort of been divided in, into two and um, and added a little bit of sort of catalyzing uh, um, uh, had a catalyzing impact on both of these traject uh, both of these existing innovations, right? Um, that they gave a little bump to open courseware, and now we have this massive repository um, of universities beyond MIT that, that have essentially um, created open courseware, and that's a good thing. Um, and also uh, a much broader array of online courses, which again are not new in and of themselves, but um, have nudged people into um, doing online courses at a, at, a, at a larger scale than 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 was previously done, and also sort of diversified our sense of of the possible impact that an online course could have, and it gave us a sense of the market for online courses across the humanities and computer science and the like. Um, so I think that's um, I think that's um, sort of the the de facto place that that MOOCs have ended up again, um, advancing to sort of previous streams of of online um, um, content and activity. Um, but while I also think that uh, as for these universities themselves, we are focusing much more on the so what for our own students, right? We're, we're focusing much more on the recirculation idea that I mentioned earlier in the conversation, where we're saying, okay, um, now that we've done all of this stuff online, um, so what for our own students? And the answer for that, um, for, for many of us, is like all of these neat online tools that we've incorporated into to improving uh, our own teaching, um, a broad broader sense that, for example, um, that my students' learning um, does not just happen in the lecture hall, right? That, that really where they learn is, is doing the assignments and, uh, and working with their peers. And there's just much more attention to how the sort of out-of-class experience, I think, um, needs to be, um, have as much attention paid to it as a lecture, as the design of a lecture, right? Um, so I think that with all the effort that we put into MOOCs, um, uh, as far as like, um, uh, expanding our sense of what learning can be, not just in the classroom, but in front of a screen and with other people in front of a screen. You get a lot more instructors who have taught MOOCs and who are talking about MOOCs throughout the university saying, okay, I need to pay attention to uh, not just what I'm teaching in these 90, in this 90 minute lecture, but what you're going to do when you get home with each other. Right. Um, and so I think that's, that's been a useful nudge of MOOCs too, is that 
you know, they've they forced us to say, okay, now that we know all this, um, how can we channel it back into our own residential programs and make our courses better for our own students. Hmm. Have you seen any, I mean, perhaps this is one of the key differentiators between MOOCs and, you know, online um, degree programs, but are, are, are schools looking at these at all in any kind of, uh, you know, profit model? Are they these revenue streams or the, the fees that are associated with these mainly just kind of cover administrative costs? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think that for Coursera, obviously, as a as a for profit, they're trying to be um, as as innovative as possible and maximize profits. Um, uh, and edX's goal um, is to be sustainable. <laughs> we, we are we are uh, that is our that has always been our goal is to recoup costs and and um, and I think that's um, we we I can't really speak to the business model. The the research that is the, that I'm I have access to is more academic and less business research. Um, but there, uh, after our year four report, um, uh, there was attention on our committee um, to basically saying, okay, let, let's get the financial report on MOOCs. Now we have you know, um, these uh, annual reports on MOOCs that, that my colleague Ike Chuang and I have published, have published every year. Um, but that's, that's been really helpful. Uh, but now that we have a sense of, of where, what MOOCs are and what they're doing, now let's get the financial modeling in place. And, uh, um, and that's sort of going on behind the scenes, but there hasn't been um, uh, a more public review of that um, of the of the business model um, there's a Harvard Business School case that's been written on it but that was sort of from the early days of MOOCs um, and sort of maybe that needs to be updated is the idea um, one of the things that I maybe should have asked at the beginning of this but I'm gonna maybe I'll I don't know edit it and put it back in the beginning or something but I'm, I'm I was really interested in something you shared in the presentation called the Gartner hype cycle yes <laughs> and I I couldn't help but try to you know, find ways to, you know, apply that to other things in my, in my life and you know, what was going on. And, and I wonder if you could just sort of explain it. And, uh, and then I have a, another follow-up question. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, so let me just say, I'll just set it up. Like I'm, I'm looking at this, you know, at a graph and, you know, it, it, it sort of, it's a, it's a line that goes from, you know, left to right, uh, you know, the, the, uh, it, it jumps up really high and then it goes back down and then it comes up to a sort of a, a, an even number or rather an even sort of line. Uh, yep. and, and you've got, uh, uh, visibility and time are the axes here. Yes. Yes. So, so it starts with a technology trigger then there's a peak of inflated expectations, and then there's a trough of disillusionment. <laughs> right? that's, where, that's where you and I met. Um, <laughs> that's right. On November 10th, yeah, more or less. That, that's, that was a different kind of cycle, I Indeed, think. Indeed, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, it, the, the Gartner hype cycle was, is, was a statement about uh, technologies and, uh, and the media. And it, it was basically saying that, that that due to media hype and always searching for the next big thing, um, any initially promising seeming technology will be will have its its expectations overly inflated by the media, um, and then it's going to come crashing down to a trough of disillusionment. Um, and then uh, what they optimistically think is that there will be then a slope of enlightenment and then a plateau of productivity, right? And so they so do you a good emerge job. out of the trough of disillusionment. <laughs> um, eventually, exactly. it doesn't end there. And uh, and and eventually the, uh, uh, the 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 sort of value of the technology and the public consciousness achieves a kind of an equilibrium. Yes, yes, exactly. And you know what I think is interesting and sort of behind the scenes about the Gartner hype cycle is is that the the media effect is really the peak of inflated expectations and then the trough of disillusionment. And the media will love to overinflate so that then they can they can you know sort of cash in on the disillusionment, right? right. Um, whereas if if there were no media at all, you might wonder what the what the cycle would look like. That maybe it would just be a technology trigger, a slope of enlightenment, and then a plateau of productivity with that without the the peak and the trough. Um, and and th and that I think is is I hope where we're at with MOOCs, right? As I described, it's like maybe it's not so sexy that we've uh, galvanized uh, um, and renewed interest in um, in open courseware and online courses. Uh, but that that's uh, we have an we have a enlightened sense of of the promise of those two uh, offerings, and and we're being very productive in generating them now. And that's um, maybe less sexy, um, but uh, it's 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 making uh, there's there's a there's a there's a lot of courses 
courses that you can still access right now. Um, and uh, teachers around the world can access all of these um, these uh, instructional materials to make their work better. So there's sort of a quiet, I think we're sort of in a, a productive, quiet phase right now of, of doing good work to, to make educational resources um, readily available and um, and broaden the number of students who, who have who are learning from them. Um, so, uh, so I'm hoping, I'm hoping we're in this plateau of productivity. Well, of all of the things that you mentioned as a mission for yourself and your colleagues in this, um, in this project, you know, be sexy. I don't think I heard you mention, um, <laughs> you know, that's just kind of an added bonus if you can kind of get there, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, okay. as an academic, it was, it's never an aspiration. <laughs> Oh, awesome. Well, um, uh, anything, anything that you'd like to, to add per se at this moment? Is there anything fascinating that I didn't ask about or, 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 uh, or, or evoke? Well, you know, I, I, uh, it's a good question. I, I hope, um, people read the report and I, I think that this sets a good, um, example again for like for open data and big data, right? I mean, um, I think that's kind of behind the scenes, a good model for university investment um, is uh, not just in infrastructure broadly, but in research infrastructure and then like transparency about it, right? I mean, that was, that's long been one of our goals. And I think it extends beyond MOOCs, um, but, to, but, but for these big universities to, to, to say, hey, you know what? Um, we're going to be transparent with our data. That's actually a remarkable thing. <laughs> and uh, and the fact that everyone can just go and, and find all of our course statistics uh, online, um, I wish they could do that for everything else that we have residentially, and maybe uh, someday uh, we'll have that too. Um, all, all to, again, um, improve our understanding of, of how to make these learning and teaching opportunities better, better for all of our students. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for your interest. Me too. Thank you. And thanks for all your all your good work on this. I'm sure people will find it super fascinating. All right, hang in there through your trough of dissolution. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> I think I'm, I've, you know, I, 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 that was be, that's behind me. I think I, I've finally on to uh, some back on the plateau of productivity here. <laughs> right. so. Hang in there. We're, we're, we're right there with you. Thanks, man. <laughs> So I am of the mind that anything we can do to promote learning is inherently good. So I loved learning more about this and the way that it's happening uh, online in this arena. And, uh, you know, our sense of community is changing so fast, and especially in global terms. So listening to Dr. Ho reminds us just how quickly the distances between people and places are shrinking, uh, especially when it comes to the exchange of information. I found it fascinating to listen to his talk right after the election, as I did um, you know, an election that was fought and won on the idea that this mixture of people and ideas is happening much too fast and it should be slowed down or even stopped altogether. It also reminds me of the degree to which having a college education played a part in electing the president. As Nate Silver put it, the act of having attended college itself may be important insofar as colleges and universities are often more diverse places than students' hometowns. So it'll be interesting to stay in touch with this research and see what amount of leveling uh, MOOCs and the increasing ubiquitousness of free education online can do for our society, both domestically and, uh, and internationally. Though, as he said, and in the line from Nate Silver that I just read, the physical interaction with one another in college still remains a vastly important commodity and one that isn't likely to be replaced until we have Oculus Rift University or... That thing in the Matrix that just uploads kung fu and helicopter piloting into my brain. Um, then I'd basically be Magnum PI, but better at kung fu. All that would be left would be the mustache, and I just I think that's where I draw the line. I can't do a mustache. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget to rate the show. Follow me on Twitter at CrushPod, and I'll be back with some fresh crush over the coming weeks. Enjoy what remains of your summer. Thanks, folks. Spread love.